VoiceOver describes what's happening on your iPhone screen. VoiceOver on settings. So you can navigate it just by listening. Books, contacts, calendar, double tap to open. Breakfast with Anna from 10 to 11. And get on with your day. Accessibility. There's more to iPhone. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Yo, technology, what is it all about? We have something we call the Mr. Burns test. So Mr. Burns yeah. is this character on The Simpsons. He's yeah. basically the, the prototype of a greedy industrial capitalist. Doesn't yeah. care about anyone but himself. We want to see companies that have a path to making a product that Mr. Burns would choose, right? Because it's the cheapest, <laughs> highest quality, most convenient, and oh, by the way, it's sustainable. Because this is really the only way you can pull the lever of capitalism to solve these big problems really quickly. Hello and welcome to Danny in the Valley, your weekly dispatch from behind the scenes and inside the minds of the top people in tech. I am your host. Danny Fortson. Thank you for tuning in. We have got yet another good one for you today. As you may have guessed, I am not in Davos this week. Obviously, my invite must have been lost in the post. It's tragic, really. So instead of traipsing around the frozen alpine conditions, I chose to walk up a very steep hill in San Francisco instead to the headquarters of 50 Years, which is a venture capital firm with a difference in that they are focused on climate change and other very big kind of global problems. So what they're not looking for is the next social media app or enterprise software startup that's not really their thing. And I had met the co-founder, or rather spoke with the co-founder, Seth Bannon, on a story I wrote a couple months ago about what Silicon Valley was, or rather what it was not doing around climate change. I enjoyed the conversation, so I thought we should just do it with mics. And we had the added benefit of uh, having this conversation, one of the cooler company headquarters I've been to. So 50 Years is based in this brand spanking new five-story house on a hill in San Francisco, just above the Castro, and has floor-to-ceiling windows with amazing views over the city. So I got on the train from downtown and, and headed that way. So I was on your website before I came here and it's like, I can't remember what the exact kind of tagline is, but it's like backing entrepreneurs. Solving the world's biggest problems. Yeah. Which is what every VC's website or message is, but it doesn't feel like they're actually doing that. Mm -hmm. And was that something that you saw kind of a gap in the market, so to speak, that you're trying to fill? Because it does feel like a lot of it is now around appification and software, et cetera, and less about solving big problems. I totally agree. Um, so I founded the fund with my partner, Ella, because I, uh, when I was running my own startup previously, wanted investors that fell at the intersection of two buckets. 
We were building a company um, in the sort of civic tech space. We had every intention of building a billion dollar company, but it wasn't what really woke us up every day. What, what woke us up and kept us late at night was the impact we thought we could have on society if we put this tool into the hands of activists and great nonprofit organizations and all that. But when we fundraised, we found that investors basically fell into either bucket one, investors that genuinely cared about the impact we could have in the world, impact investors, who were great because they're very values aligned, but typically knew nothing about early stage startups or company building, right. couldn't help us close enterprise deals, couldn't help us hire great executives, couldn't help us let go of an underperforming employee. Um, and we were first time founders and felt like we really needed that help. Or the investors fell into bucket number two. This is sort of Sand Hill Road, yeah. um, where they could help a lot with all those things because they had a lot of experience, but at the end of the day saw business as a purely cash-on-cash cash return game. Yeah. Um, and it was very frustrating to, to us. And I would talk to other largely millennial entrepreneurs who had every intention of building 10, 50, $100 billion companies, but were doing it because it seemed like the best way of solving some truly important problem. Yeah. And when I say important problem, I'm talking about the, the truly big things, things like education and malnourishment and the climate crisis and disease. And so it did really feel like there was a need for that kind of aligned capital that could also help scale the business side of things. And so that's why we started 50 years. How was that fundraising process? Because to, to your point, I mean, you have some software in your portfolio, but it's not, it's not the kind of easy stuff if you're taking on like the climate crisis or whatever. I think we actually got in touch initially because I was writing a story about, it was during the blackouts this past summer, ash is raining down all over Silicon Valley. None of these companies that have just these huge, just collections of the biggest brains around, were devoting any time or thought or mm -hmm. money to these huge problems. I imagine probably because it's hard and it's hard to see how you really make money. So when you're out there as a, how old are you now? I'm 35. When did you raise the fund? Uh, we raised our first fund in 2015. So you're out there, you're 30 years old. You're saying we want to raise this fund to take on these really big problems where the path to profitability is dot, dot, dot. It was not easy. Um, <laughs> and so it wasn't easy for a couple of reasons. So the first reason is that one of our theses as a fund, which is that these companies that are solving these big problems are actually really great investments uh, that will outperform on a purely financial basis, there was a lot of skepticism uh, in the market. And I think the predominant reason is that funds historically that were raised to have some sort of social impact were called impact funds. And yeah. impact funds are traditionally concessionary. Kind of like a B team. From a, a purely finance perspective, yeah. it feels like a B team. It's yeah. like, okay, oh, you're going to trade some of the financial upside yeah. for the impact. And what we were saying is, no, no, those two things actually reinforce each other. Um, and we had data that we could point to, right? So we could point to these beautiful Deloitte studies where they would go out and ask 7,700 millennials across 29 countries, you know, what do you think about business? And millennials would, would tell them, I want to work for companies that have positive social or environmental ends. One of the questions they ask is just an open-ended question, what is the purpose of business? And every other generation will sort of chuckle and say, you know, to make money, of course. Um, a plurality of millennials will actually say the purpose of business is to improve society or protect the environment. And what this means is that all of the talent that's coming uh, of age, these millennials, want to work for these companies. And if you ask the CEO of a fast-growing Silicon Valley startup, why are you not growing even faster, the number one response you'll get is, I just can't hire great people fast enough. Right. And so we see that data. We also see data around consumer spend changing preferences. We see data around millennials inheriting $41 trillion from the baby boomer generation. And we were saying, these companies are going to outperform. It was not well received. 
And the second reason our, I think our first fund was pretty difficult to raise was because we were saying that we're going to back these really deep technology companies, yeah. these technologies that have a tremendous amount of technical risk ahead of them. Um, and we were saying, but if we can quantify that risk and then we can support, you know, uh, 30 of those companies in a single fund. And if we only choose companies where if they figure out the technical risk, they'll have really great businesses. This is what venture was made for. It's literally it's literally why venture capital as an asset class was invented. Yeah. Um, but venture has gotten very far away from that these days where people want to support these easy software solutions that have obvious business models. And so the first fundraise was not easy. I think it took actually about almost a year and a half to raise our first fund, which was under $5 million. So it was a super it tiny fund. a year fund. and a half to raise $5 million. It did, yeah. Oh, uh, and goodness. then what happened is we supported 32 companies from that first fund. We wrote 50 to 100K checks. And our second fund, which was... A $50 million fund was, I would say, probably an order of magnitude easier to raise. We were actually targeting 40 and ended up at our hard cap of 50 because we actually now had actual results. We could say, look at these companies, look at how well they're doing, look at who else is investing in these things. And people are saying, oh, interesting, you can build businesses that have a great profit model and are also addressing these big problems in the world. Like we, we talked about Memphis Meat. So, yeah. you know, I think this is a really interesting company in that they are growing real meat without the animals by farming cells directly. So why is that something you'd wanna do? Um, well, we're functionally right now using animals as a production technology to take plant protein inputs, this is the grass that yeah. they eat or the, or the hay we feed them, and convert those plant proteins into uh, outputs that we like to eat, drink, or wear, meat, milk, leather. There's a whole host of problems using them that way. One, it's obviously particularly cruel to the animals. Two, animal agriculture actually contributes more to greenhouse gas emissions than all of transportation combined. So yeah. it's literally destroying our planet. Three, because these animals are packed so tightly together on these factory farms, in order to keep them healthy, we have to pump them full of antibiotics, which then is the perfect breeding ground for these antibiotic-resistant microbes, which then often spread to humans. So it's creating these health catastrophes. On top of all of that, it, we're still not producing the meat cheap enough to actually feed the world. So Memphis Meats had this idea of what if we could take the exact same biological processes happening inside the cow and just bring them outside of the cow? Could we grow the exact same meat but without all the problems? And it yeah. turns out you can. Where are they now? Because I know that uh, we were talking about Beyond Meat before as well, who's, and Ethan's been on this podcast. I've seen like the Impossible Whopper at Burger King. And I see Beyond Meat in the supermarkets. What's Is Memphis Meats out there in the world? And, or where is it in its kind of... Yeah, very, 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 very soon. The three big risks in that business have basically from the beginning been one, regulatory. Yeah. What would the regulars say about making meat this way? Two, lab grown meat. We call it cultivated meat or cultured <laughs> meat or clean meat. Yeah. Uh, although yeah, yeah. some people in the past have, have used that. Although yeah. we think it's a, inaccurate in that Cheerios is also, you know, in the, in the initial days was developed in a food lab. Right. But now it's not produced in a lab. And so we don't say lab made cereal. Right. Yeah. But so regulatory consumer acceptance, which is why we don't like that phrase. And then could they drive down costs? Right. So the initial burger that was made cost about a you know, million dollars to make this burger. Obviously, a million dollar burgers. Yeah. Not yeah. a huge market for that. Um, <laughs> and and Memphis has made unbelievable progress on all three of those domains. So a lot of the uh, consumer acceptance surveys show that there's a large plurality of people that are actually really excited to try this. They were able to get half of the meat lobby to actually pressure the White House and the FDA and the USDA to uh, approve this stuff. And the FDA commissioner, Scott Gottlieb, when he announced that they were going to regulate it, talked about the sustainability benefits. I can talk about how they did that if you're curious. It was, a, it was an amazing am, coup. I am because I've also talked to the other kind of meatless meat companies. And there's the whole cattleman's lobby, which has come out against them saying, mm -hmm. you can't call this meat. Just like with the, the kind of 
other milks. Yep. They're saying, oh, you can't call this milk. You yep. can't call this meat. This is, and there's a whole kind of battle raging in those worlds. It's a, it's a, it's a nasty battle, very bloody yeah. battle. Uh, yeah. So Memphis actually had this insight, which is that the meat lobby is actually divisible. There's just two parts of it. So one right. are the people who actually own livestock. These are the cattle ranchers. But the second part of it are the meat processors. So the Tyson Foods, for instance, where they take slaughtered flesh and yeah. they turn that flesh into products and they sell that products often under their own brands. And the meat processors have largely divested from livestock over the last decade. So they don't own any cattle anymore. And so Memphis was able to go to that half of the meat lobby and say, hey, this is just another input for you. And in fact, it might be a better input because you don't have to worry about bacterial contamination. You don't have so to worry about sustainability going problems. going to the, the meat packers, so to speak. The meat processors. Right, right. Exactly. Right. And so the meat processors who lobby under the name the Meat Institute um, actually peeled away from the other half of the meat lobby and jointly wrote a letter to the FDA and to the USDA saying, hey, we're actually really excited about this technology. Uh, we think it's better for these reasons and we want you to... To regulate it and so it was it was a big coup when did that happen three or four months ago okay and the third uh, trajectory is just cost right so how do we bring that cost down and i unfortunately can't share the exact number i wish yeah, i could yeah. but there will be an announcement very soon uh, but they've made incredible progress on that domain too they're actually a year and a half of where we even thought was possible just a year ago and then of course there's the acceptance by consumers for example living in europe for a long time genetically modified whatever serious rules around and regulations yeah. around that. And people are just like, I don't want it. Nope. Can't, mm -hmm. you can't even import it. I fundamentally believe that people don't like meat because of how it's made right now. They like meat despite how it's made right now. And in fact, you can see this where if you show someone a video of a slaughterhouse, their meat consumption drops. It often picks back up once they forget. Yeah. Um, and so I, I just fundamentally think that people like meat because it tastes great and it has a nutritional profile they like. Yep. Um, they don't like it because of how it's made. And so if you can give them the exact same alternative, but made in a place where they could be proud to go and look and actually see it, that they'll, they'll run towards it. Right. That's a little bit of a mountain to climb though, I think. I think it'll be easier than people, people expect, um, right. especially if you think about how they can introduce this, right? They, you know, they can introduce this through Michelin-starred chefs, yeah, right, yeah. who are, who are well-respected members of, of the culinary elite who can do really cool things with it. And once people see new technology in action, they very quickly get comfortable with it, um, as long as it's safe and healthy and sustainable. And I, I, the thing I like about Memphis Meats in particular is that the Uma, the CEO, is actually a cardiologist by training. And so right. he cares a lot about the sort of safe, uh, safety and health of the, of the meat he's making. And there's a, a lot of different ways that you guys are going around, you know, what is effectively sustainability or climate or saving the planet, for lack of a better phrase. One of the ones I saw in your portfolio is reproductive health. Yeah. Why? Well, so uh, the company, <laughs> or you can explain what the company does, and yeah, then we get into the company line. you're talking about is called uh, Norex. Basically, what they do it's a telemedicine uh, company, and they are able to deliver reproductive healthcare to places that have these healthcare deserts. So there are large swaths of the country, either because they're in such a rural area that there just aren't really any doctors yeah. in, a, in a reasonable distance, or because they are culturally so conservative that if a young girl wants to get contraceptive health from her doctor, she can't because the doctor will literally ring up the right. parents and say, hey, I think we have to have a conversation. And hence, people just can't get the health care they need. And so NERCs launched a telemedicine application where you can have a consultation with a doctor and they will literally ship you your contraceptive needs or now they've moved into other 
both diagnostics and therapeutics directly to your door. And so this is basically unlocking a, a really important area of care to a lot of people who don't have it before. And so we think it's not only a, a social good yeah. because it's bringing people health care that they couldn't otherwise get, but we also joke that it may be in terms of contributing to combating the climate crisis, our, our single most important portfolio company. Because if you can help people plan for their families, you're actually preventing the, the, the catastrophe from, from, from accelerating. Well, because also there's lots of studies around when contraception becomes widely available, women have less kids. For sure, they have less kids. Also, almost everything else improves. If you, if yeah, you empower people, and, educational outcomes, yeah. gender inequality, um, if you empower people to make decisions around their own family by allowing them contraceptive health, basically every quality of life metric improves. Are there other surprising or perhaps left field ways that you guys are attacking this through investments? Or if there are like one or two companies that you think, well, that doesn't have anything to do with the environment or whatever, but you actually, when you stop back, step back and think about it, be like, I actually know it's quite a big deal. Yeah, I think I think one of the things that has surprised us is uh, the the variety of different ways that you can contribute to solving the climate crisis. So you know, when we were first getting going, I think we thought uh, thought oh, carbon capture, right? That's one, and yeah. maybe you know, renewable energy. That's yeah. the second. And then what we realized is that there's so many different entrepreneurs that are contributing in different ways to uh, either decarbonize industries or bring about more sustainable methods of production. One that we learned a lot about in the chemicals industry is a company called Solugen. So they basically enzymatically make industrial chemicals. So Which are normally come from petroleum. Petroleum-based inputs. Yeah. Right. So their, their first chemical is called hydrogen peroxide. It's currently made through this process called the anthroquinone process. Long story short, you need these $150 million plants, seven football yeah. fields long, petroleum inputs, toxic outputs. Every year, one of these plants somewhere in the world explodes. Yeah, yeah. Um, and then Solugen has a two-step process. They literally feed their engineered enzymes, plant sugars, and air and the enzymes crank out hydrogen peroxide. And while the current- And that's working. It's working, they're, they're selling, they have quite a large number of customers. And what's cool is that not only is it a profitable business, but they also capture CO2 for every ton that they make, whereas the existing process emits CO2. And so it's actually a net 8.5 tons of CO2 difference for every ton of hydrogen peroxide produced. And they can do this not just for hydrogen peroxide, but for a whole slew of different chemicals. Um, so there are all these really interesting ways of going into industries and finding out the ways in which they are emitting different greenhouse gases and just and just eliminating those sources. What's the catch? That, that all sounds too good to be true. I, mean, the, 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 <laughs> I don't know if it's cost or just scalability. The, or... the catch is that it's just really, really hard enzyme engineering. Enzymes are basically these molecular machines. They've historically been really hard to engineer because their function is defined not only by their genetic code, by the sequence of their DNA, but also by their morphology. So literally the way these things fold in three-dimensional space yeah. impacts their function. And so enzyme engineering has long eluded biological engineers. Um, and we made a huge leap forward recently uh, where Francis Arnold, who actually won the Nobel Prize for this in 2018, uh, figured out this process called direct, this technology called directed evolution of enzymes. And uh, the basic premise of what she does is she takes uh, an enzyme that maybe does something sort of similar to what you want it to do. You make a thousand copies of that enzyme. You randomly damage those thousand copies. You, for instance, you could literally just uh, shoot radiation at them. So you're just randomly causing damage. Then you set up an experiment where the enzymes that do something close to what you want them to do survive and the other ones get destroyed. And then you take the three winners 
You create a thousand copies, you randomly damage them, Funnel you rinse and repeat, it. Right, right, and right. it turns out that you can end up with an enzyme that does exactly what you want it to do through leveraging this process of evolution. You have no idea why it does what you want it to do, but it works. And so Solugen, their fundamental technology is based on this idea of directed evolution of enzymes, which wasn't even a tool in the, in the toolbox of an enzymologist 10 years ago. Right. To your point around earlier around millennials and what is important to them. We've written a lot over the past, well, basically since I moved out here, but it feels like it's gaining steam. Is like a lot of the um, employee misgivings at big tech. There's a lot more um, disquiet. Think of Google and, you know, our AI is being used to guide drones that are killing people. We don't want to do that. And lots, there's a lot of more of these kind of open letters or people quitting. I mean, are you seeing a lot of refugees from that world being like, okay, I don't want to optimize ads anymore, or I'm worried about this thing that I built for one thing is being used for something else. I think that there has been a huge awakening recently um, where Silicon Valley has come to terms with the fact that it has tremendous power in the world and therefore has tremendous responsibility. Um, and so I think you can pair that with people realizing there's, there's basically four things everyone want, wants in a career. You want to work on interesting problems with people you like, you want to make money, and you want to do good. And historically, you might maybe had to choose two to three of those things. I think there's now a realization that you can have all four. And so people at these tech companies that don't feel like they're getting all four, that feel like they're either contributing negatively or just yeah. building a business that makes money for money's sake, but maybe it's not negative, but it's not a positive, they're dissatisfied and they're leaving. Some of them are working inside these companies to try and change the direction, which I think is really admirable. But a lot of them are saying, you know what, at the end of the day, this company's business model is to sell more people crap that they don't really need. And I don't know if that's what I want my legacy to be. And so we actually see a huge number of talent from these companies, either founding companies in the sustainability space or health space or joining startups in that space. And again, I think this is sort of in action, the thesis of, of our fund, which is that companies that are actually solving big problems are going to be able to recruit and retain the top talent. And you're seeing that? We're seeing it in a real way. The number of people who on Twitter publicly just in the last six months have said, I resigned my position at X big tech company, and yeah. I am going to spend the next few months figuring out how I can contribute best to solving the sustainability crisis is inspiring. I'm, I would say not a week goes by where I don't see one of those posts. I also see it with people who control capital. There are a lot of in people who have been angel investing, you know, maybe just on their own yeah. sort of professionally, who say, you know what, I am going to move 100% of my portfolio towards impact because I think that's what's right, and also I think that's where the best returns are. And so I really do think we're in this sort of sea change where both talent and capital, and hopefully consumer preferences, I think we're not quite there yet, are moving in, in a really positive direction. VoiceOver describes what's happening on your iPhone screen. VoiceOver on, settings. So you can navigate it just by listening. Books, contacts, calendar, double tap to open. Breakfast with Anna from 10 to 11. And get on with your day. Accessibility. There's more to iPhone. Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds. And they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. 
Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. On your point around consumer preference, it's really, ultimately it comes down to cost. Cost, quality, convenience. We, we, because, so, I mean, most people are too busy to think about, okay, you know, are these diapers sustainably made or are they cheap and do my dollars can go further? 100%. We, we actually, we have something we call the Mr. Burns test. So Mr. Burns yeah. is this character on The Simpsons. He's yeah. basically the, the prototype of a greedy industrial capitalist. He doesn't yeah. care about anyone but himself. We want to see companies that have a path to making a product that Mr. Burns would choose, right? Because it's the cheapest, <laughs> highest quality, most convenient, and oh, by the way, it's sustainable. Because this is really the only way you can pull the lever of capitalism to solve these big problems really quickly, is if you can tap into that dynamic that you just talked about. So don't you need some massive winners to get that? Because right now you have Bill Gates, obviously, is investing in, I mean, all of his money in these huge systemic global problems. But there aren't that... There aren't that many. I don't know if there's um, anybody else here in the Bay Area who's like, you know what, I'm super loaded and I'm just going to go all in on this. We but need it, winners. We need winners. Yeah. And, you know, I think we are at a unique inflection point. And so in the same way that people who got really excited about the Internet in the 90s would have said, hey, the Internet, this is a thing. This yeah. is going to be where everything's going. If you said to those people, well, show me a few historical successes in the Internet, they'd say, you don't get it. No, now's the time. Yeah. We actually think that there are underlying changes in the sort of demographics of the consumer population, the capital population, and the talent population that, that means that these impact companies will outperform now, even though maybe they didn't historically. But you're absolutely right. Until there are big winners, until there are multiple funds, hopefully ours is one of them, but there needs to be more like us that outperform, there's still going to be skepticism from the broader capital markets. We take as an inspiration what Al Gore did with Generation Wealth Management. So basically over 10 years ago, Vice President Al Gore yeah. uh, started going around to long-only public equities investors and telling them, hey, if you invest with an ESG lens, you will outperform the market. And he just kept getting door after door yeah. after door shut in his Slam face. His face. People right. said, hey, you know, listen, Vice President, stick to politics. You don't really yeah. understand how this works. And he got frustrated. So he teamed up with this guy, David Blood, raised $10 billion, invested in public equities with a strict ESG lens. And guess what? massively outperform the market. Mm. Now, basically, every public equities investor uses ESG as at least one of their filters. Yeah. It might not be the primary filter like generation, but they use it as at least one of the filter. Why? Because they know it's a driver of returns. So by being a very convincing proof point, he has now systemically changed the way capital is allocated. We hope to do the same thing for venture capital. So it's really interesting. I was in, back in London not too long ago and um, talking to some of my old contacts in the world of oil and gas. And they were saying that there's real panic at the big oil companies because they're being told by the big, their biggest shareholders, like, look, you're kind of bordering on toxic here and we might have to divest. Now, obviously they haven't, some have, but most haven't because where else are you going to get that dividend stream and everything else? But the companies are really kind of, it feels like having a moment where they're like, okay, well, we make so much money from oil. It's what we know. 
but how do we kind of, you know, shift the money funnel to these new things that are actually going to replace our core business, which is, you know, fantastic. The same way that, you know, the car companies are trying to catch up to Tesla. I think there's a huge opportunity to help those companies uh, redirect their sort of innovation talent and capital talent in a positive direction. I think if you look at what BP did, BP was early to realizing this. Mm-hmm. You know, I would say probably 15 or 20 years ago, they sort of saw the writing on the wall and they started investing heavily in building out their own renewables architecture. And then they got rid of them all. <laughs> and they got rid of them all. Um, <laughs> and so, but but I think that if you can change the, the uh, negative impact of those companies by just 5% sometimes, you can have a tremendously positive impact. And so I'm, I'm hopeful that those, those companies do see their writing on the wall, see their talent leaving, and, and try and spin up these positive programs. But I will admit, and this just might be my bias being in the world of tech entrepreneurship in Silicon Valley, that I just want all those companies to be put out of business. Uh, I want companies that create competitive products that win, win the Mr. Burns test. Yeah. And I want those people who've been running those companies who have known for a long time what they're doing, just like the tobacco industry knew back in the day, to just be no more. And do you think it's a similar level? I mean, it's different. It's worse. It's worse. It's worse. I, I think that there, there's been a huge number of exposés that show that people in big oil have known about their contributions to the climate crisis for a very long time. They were very accurately able to predict levels of greenhouse gas in the atmosphere, they were very able, uh, able to accurately predict the impact of that on, on global temperatures. They knew the ecological disasters that this would cause, and they chased profit instead. And I think the crisis might be way worse than the health epidemic from smoking ever was. I hope it's reversible. Yeah. Um, that it, it might take literally generations to undo some of the damage. And so I think that those people are, are going to have a day of, of reckoning. And I think that especially now, if you're an employee at one of those companies, there's really no excuse anymore. You better be either very actively advocating for change within those companies or, or leaving. But you got to pay bills. Got to pay bills. And, and I, I, I understand that. And I do know that a lot of people have that consideration. But you also need to be able to look your children in the face or your grandchildren in the face and, 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 and convey values that you are proud of. And I think that people have a responsibility not only to their own wallets, but to be citizens, to be members of society. And I think that for too long, we have taken the tact of saying those are sort of two distinct things. There's the world of business and yeah. there's the world of society. I think one of the most dangerous ideas in the history of the world was the Friedman Doctrine. So in, in, in 1971, Milton Friedman, Nobel Prize winning economist, yep. uh, published an essay in the New York Times called The Social Responsibility of Business is to Increase Its Profits. And this essay reads like a parody of itself. He literally says that if a businessman, and of course he said businessman, uh, yep. if a businessman <laughs> considers anything aside from profit maximization, and he says, such as the health of the environment, the welfare of its employees, the good of society. He said, these businessmen are undermining the basis of free society. It's a really crazy idea. When you read it, it sounds crazy, but it's how people have approached business for, for the last 50 century. years. Yeah. Um, and I think that people need to wake up from that um, because it's, it's putting us in a really, really dark place. Well, what's really interesting, that Friedman Doctrine, I think it was the International Roundtable of Business, or what I can't remember exactly what the organization is called, but it's... 100 of the top 500 companies in the world, they put out this statement last year that basically said the Friedman Doctrine is dead. I love it. JP Morgan, it was Amazon, it was all these big, huge companies saying that we have to start thinking about fairness, treating our employees well, the environmental impact of what we do. Now, it's unclear whether there's what the follow through is, but it does feel like at least that that's a twigging of like, 
we have to start at least talking about this. We have to start acknowledging it. For sure. And I think if you, if you track that back to where that's coming from, I'm not sure that they all had a come to Jesus moment overnight. I'm not even sure that they all fully believe what they're saying. I think there's a yeah. lot of, you know, quote unquote, greenwashing or whitewashing that goes on. Um, but I think it, the fact that they feel the need to say that reflects something fundamental that's happening. When the largest uh, money manager in the world in BlackRock feels the need to say we're putting the climate crisis at the center of our investment strategy, it shows that they see some headwinds that they feel the need to react to. Th those headwinds could be consumer demand. Those headwinds could be a changing preference in capital markets. And I think most of the time, those headwinds are their own employees being deeply dissatisfied with the work that they're doing and the impact that work is having and, and churning. And so yeah. I think that is why you see these companies making these announcements. And I honestly think that the employees are going to see through the companies that are actually following, not, not actually following through, but that are just making these statements. In the years ahead, we might see a huge amount of volatility among the sort of Fortune 50 and Fortune 500. Well, yeah, and BlackRock is still invested in all the big oil companies, et cetera. So it'll be interesting to see if, what, how that translates. Mm -hmm. How did you end up out here, Silicon Valley? Uh, yeah, so after I initially came out to do Y Combinator, so I, I founded a company. Um, what was the company? It's called Amicus, so Digital Organizing Tools for Nonprofits and Political Campaigns. And so, yeah, my, my background was actually in the world of impact. So I was largely inspired by my mother who, when I was young, would do small things like if she thought a law was unjust, she'd get her neighbors together to write our local congresswoman, which right. I thought was super cool. Yeah, yeah. Um, or my favorite thing is if we were ever at a supermarket and she saw someone cutting in front of someone else, she'd march over and say, excuse me, I saw that. This person was in front of you. Right. And I thought it was amazing. Uh, and when I was 12, uh, we were living in a house that was powered by uh, propane gas. And uh, there was a leak and a spark and explosion. And she was in the house at the time and, and got tossed up and hit the ceiling and hit the floor and uh, oh was gosh. left with uh, uh, brain damage and, and nerve damage. And uh, was permanently disabled after that. Um, and uh, wow. so what happened is she would see the same injustice she saw before, but wouldn't be able to do what she used to do about it. Even today, sometimes a letter is really hard for her to write because a word she's yeah. used 10,000 times just won't come to her. And so she'd get sad. And so I'd get sad. And so I basically started to do those things for her. You know, I'd say, hey, mom, look, I, I wrote Congresswoman Delora. And right. it would cheer her up, cheered me up, problem solved. Yeah. And then I think I was probably 14 or 15. I had the realization that there were hundreds of millions of people in the world who were in the same sort of situation she was in that they were faced with injustice but couldn't do anything about it themselves. Either they were disabled like she is or because they're kids and just don't have a voice or yeah. because they come from a socioeconomic background that doesn't equip them with the tools they need um, to advocate for themselves. And so I decided I wanted to be their proxy like I was her proxy. And back then I had no notion of using capital markets or technology to solve big problems. And so I did what most kids who want to do good do. I started volunteering for nonprofits and political campaigns. Right. So I worked for the current governor of Connecticut, Ned Lamont, worked for Barack Obama. And basically from day one was super frustrated with the, with the tech tools in that space. I coped by whining a lot about it, which worked great for me. Solid, not so great solid for people strategy. Around me. Solid strategy. Started to hear a lot of people say, you know what, why don't you stop complaining and do something about it? Uh, knew how to code from high school, teamed up with some friends, built a tool. That tool accidentally turned into a startup, realized we had no idea what to do. And so we got sort of went to the Y Combinator universe, which was amazing. And then I just got seduced by this world of technology and entrepreneurship and, and how quickly you could use capitalism to create change. Right. And of course, frustrated by the fact that most of, those, of that change has either been negative or, or neutral. Yeah, when we decided that we wanted to launch 50 years, I think there's really only one place in the world where you can find a lot of entrepreneurs that are really dreaming so big, right? That are really saying, I'm going to make a dent in solving the climate crisis, yeah. or I'm going to end that disease, or I'm going to figure out how to educate the entire world. Um, New York has a booming tech scene. Boston has a booming tech scene. Seattle has a booming tech scene. But 
the entrepreneurs that really dream that big, I think, are still largely here. And so we said, we've got we've to come here and, and have been in San Francisco ever since. And then you tried to raise your fund for a year and a half. Then we tried to raise a fund, <laughs> got, got bruised and battered. Uh, and now, and yeah, now, now things have gotten a lot easier. And, and, and you know, we, we now have had tremendous success. Actually, uh, you know, the, the vast majority of, of RLPs are, are, are names that people know. So we've got the founders of, of Skype and Zendesk and Climate Corporation and Supercell and Cruise and Baidu and, and, and GitHub and just all these amazing people. Largely, I think, tech entrepreneurs who are also able to see how these changing winds are playing out and are excited to, to sort of use technology, which they know so well, to both generate wealth and solve these problems. But still, you're kind of, um, you're not exactly a, a voice in the wilderness. There's not a lot of, comp- of firms like this here, which again, kind of gets back to the point that we wrote about a couple months ago, is just, you know, there is so much innovation here. There's a lot of smart people. There's a ton of money. Where, what are we missing here? I ask myself that all the time. Um, you know, I think li- literally when, when, when I had talked to you, you know, the, uh, for that article, the, there was smoke wafting in the background. Yes. And there were some VCs that I know who are really smart people, uh, who have incredible networks, access to lots of wealth, who were tweeting that day in San Francisco about the, you know, esports franchise that they had just funded and how proud they were. And that just the, the disconnection is just really hard to wrap your mind around. And so I don't really know why. I, I, I think part of it is that most of us were raised uh, with this idea of the Friedman Doctrine, right? Most people yeah, were told yeah. that business is to make money. If you want to do good, run for politics or donate to nonprofits. And so just this idea that you can combine these two worlds is still a bit foreign to people. We actually run this organization called Impact.Tech, which is a sort of sister organization. And, and, all, and part of what we do is we host events where we're just highlighting entrepreneurs that are building businesses that can bring them wealth and do good in the world. And the number of times that a developer or designer or an entrepreneur in that room will say, oh my God, I had no idea that you could combine yeah. profit with, with, with purpose. I want to do that. It's head spinning. And so I think a lot of people just need to be shown that that's an option. And once they know, they don't want anything, they don't want anything else. If you had to bet today, what would be the kind of the space where you do have your kind of your really big hit where people are like, ooh, maybe we should think about in this space? I don't know if it's food or if it's electric cars, electric cars, obviously Tesla's already off in the stratosphere, at least at the moment, where you're looking and you're saying, okay, if this happens, they get this right, that could kind of change things. I think we're already really starting to see those breakout winners. You know, you had Ethan Brown from Beyond Meat yeah. on, your, on your show. Not one of our portfolio companies. Ethan's a friend, but absolutely love what they're doing, right? That is a mission-driven company yeah. to the core and obviously has been really well looked on at the, in the public markets. Mm-hmm. Um, I think we need a lot of those. I think uh, if you ask Ethan, why are we able to attract such amazing talent? He'll tell you, oh, because of our mission, right? Yeah. Um, I think what, if you ask Elon, he'll say the same thing. I think once we see a lot of companies breaking out and then attributing their success, not only to their innovative business models and great products, but to the fact that they were solving these truly important problems, I think people will hear it. You know, the best practice of marketing is repetition. Tell something something once, they're likely to go, oh, interesting, and then forget. You've got to repeat over and over and over. And so I think we actually need quite a large number of these successes for people to really realize that this change is happening. Are there any other companies that you think that, that are particularly, I mean, I know this is like asking you to choose your children. Um, but like that, that are kind of left field that you think, oh, that people would be like, why is they, what does that have to do with solving these big problems? So we have one company, they are enzymatically writing DNA. 
the core building blocks of synthetic biology are essentially read, write, and edit. Yep. And we're doing really great on read. The first human genome, this is a well-known fact, yep. cost $10 billion, uh, sorry, a billion dollars, 10 years, 22 yep. research universities. Now we can do it for 500 bucks in two days with zero scientists. Um, we're doing pretty well on edit. Um, so you used to need a full wet lab with a dozen scientists yeah. and millions of dollars to make it a single genetic edit. And then you, even then you weren't sure you made the edit you wanted. Now we can just crisper it in. Um, and the bottleneck to the entire field is the right space. So literally writing the DNA that you, you need to put into your yeast or your bacteria or, or whatever. So the leading company in this space is a public company called Twist. They use a chemical process to make this DNA. And because they use a chemical process, it's a bit slow. It's very expensive. It's, it has a lot of impurities. Uh, the body actually uses enzymes to write DNA. Yeah. You can tell, I love enzymes. Clearly, but clearly. as we've talked about, enzymes are <laughs> very hard to yeah. engineer. And yeah. so this, this company out of uh, UC Berkeley has a fully enzymatic process for writing DNA. And so you might think, like, how is that an impact company? But they are going to enable all these incredible solutions in synthetic biology um, to move faster and, and, and smarter and, for, and, and build better products. They'll also probably enable, if they achieve their mission of allowing anyone to sort of write a full genome in a few days, they will enable applications that just simply aren't possible right now. When you did your um, startup, is there anything things that you did wrong that you've learned that you learned from when you did when you set this up? I literally wrote a blog post about it called "Mistakes You Shouldn't Make." <laughs> That's how many right. mistakes that I made. Got you. Uh, no, I, I did. I, I mean, I made. I think a lot of the sort of standard mistakes uh, that any first-time entrepreneur makes. But I also made I made some unusual mistakes, and I think for me, uh, the biggest mistake that I made that was really really painful was. I think there's this sense in the startup world that you fake it until you make it. Yeah, you, know, yeah, you can fully. you can you can embellish, put some sparkles on that, and I, I did that, but too but too much. I think I bent the truth to the extent where I damaged my own integrity, and I, mm. I lost the trust of some people whose trust I needed, and it was a really really painful lesson. And to some extent, I can now looking back on it say that I'm I'm glad I sort of made those mistakes when I was still young, where I had time yeah. to to make the corrections that I needed to make. And uh, I now sort of think it sort of one of the greatest things that could have happened because I now live a super high integrity life and, and approach business with a, a level of integrity that I don't think I would have had I not sort of learned that painful lesson. Um, but I think that's that's one of the, the things that I, I, I did wrong. And so when I you know, advise our founders, um, you know, I often pull them back from the sort of traditional Silicon Valley advice of, of bend right. the truth, embellish, yeah. fake it till you make it because don't bullshit. Um, don't bullshit. Yeah, because I think trust is just incredibly important. And entrepreneurship is a really long repeat game, and your reputation is everything. When did you write that blog post? I must have wrote that blog post in 2014, maybe 2013, somewhere so around there. Before that. you raised the fund. Before the fund, yeah, yeah, came up in a few conversations. So. I was <laughs> yeah. no, yeah. Um, I think you know yeah. some some people. I think read that and said, "Oh, I don't know if this is someone we want to do business with." Yeah. And some people read that and said, "Wow, like um, you know, you were super vulnerable here, and we can tell that it was painful, and we can tell that you learned, and maybe had a few extra questions." And and I really appreciate uh, those people for being so direct about it and honest about it. And I recently read the biography of um, Richard Branson, and he had a very similar moment where uh, he actually went to jail for tax fraud very, very early on in his career. Right. Um, and he described it actually very similar to how I felt about it, which is he said, man, he realized it's one of the best things that happened to him because he realized that he was bending the rules a little bit too much in all aspects of life. Yeah. And if he didn't learn that painful lesson when he learned it so early in life, 
he would not have been able to course correct and who knows where he would have ended up as a business person. And so, you know, I think that there are a lot of people who, if they feel like you've really evolved, that you've internalized lessons you need to learn, yeah. we'll trust you again. And I, I really appreciate all those people because I definitely made some mistakes. Why did you write that? I wrote it as a, as a part to make sure that I learned those lessons. Um, right. and to as, memorialize it. So to memorialize right. it for myself. Um, I wasn't even, when I started writing it, totally sure I was going to publish it, right? This was just that right. sort of like, what did, what, what did go wrong here? And then when I wrote it, I realized, oh man, this could be valuable for a lot of other people. And I, I published it. There's this very popular uh, sort of news aggregator in Silicon Valley called Hacker News. Yeah, yeah. And it bubbled to number one on Hacker News Amazing. for two full days. And so wow. I was... I, I had a huge amount of dread because I was thinking maybe maybe a couple of people read this, but that gets a lot of traffic. Yeah, yeah, so yeah. I think maybe 60,000 people read the blog post in the first two days and uh, very nervous about it. But the number of people that reached out uh, either saying, oh, man, I made similar mistakes right. or wow, you know, like I read your post and I feel like I might have been on a similar trajectory and I'm going to rethink how I'm approaching storytelling and business. Um, it, it really, it, it meant a lot. And so I, I hope that by putting my mistakes out there, I can help prevent other people from, from making them. I also hope that it makes sure that I will never fall into those same traps again. <laughs> so what was your worst day of work? My worst day of work was a day where uh, I was going to have to go to an all team meeting. Mm -hmm. It was in a park in New York City to tell my team that we were close to running out of money and that we were probably going to have to lay off most of the team who had done nothing wrong. Most of the people you were about to most, meet. Most of the people I was about to meet. Amazing people who I had hired who were doing their job perfectly well because of some mistake I made. Yeah. And I hadn't really slept much the night before. I was sort of planning how I was going to say this. And I had planned to meet my two co-founders earlier on in the park and walk with them. And I met them, and one of them turned to me and said, oh, by the way, I thought I should tell you uh, I'm resigning. And the other one turned to me, who was a friend of mine for about a decade, and said, I'm resigning too, and I'm going to tell everyone why. And I sort of said, oh, why? And he said, I've lost faith in you as a leader. I don't really trust you anymore. And so yeah, so that oh, moment, wow. that walk, uh, that was the toughest time. I don't think I've really experienced many moments that tough. Yeah, I can imagine that one left to Mark. Left a, left a welt. Well, look, I really appreciate you taking the time. Is there anything um, coming from the 50 years world? But, oh, I forgot to ask. Why 50 years? Oh, 50 years. Yeah, so it's actually, uh, there's this Winston Churchill essay, which he published in 1931, yep. where he predicts synthetic biology, nuclear engineering, cellular telephony. He predicts cultured meat. He literally says in this essay, it's absurd to think that in 50 years, we'll grow the whole chicken just to eat the wing instead of growing the wing under right. suitable medium in the lab. So very interesting deep tech insight. Yeah. And then in the second part of the essay, he talks about how because the pace of technology is advancing so rapidly, it's more important than ever that a technologist take a principled approach to their work because otherwise we might be accelerating very fast, but in the wrong direction. So he combines this incredible deep tech insight with principled approach to your work. So in a tip of the hat to Winston, we took the 50 years right. from this essay called 50 Years Hence. I wonder if Mark Zuckerberg read that. I hope, I hope, he, I, <laughs> I hope he will. <laughs> uh, well, listen, thank you very much for your time. I appreciate it. Thanks for having me. Yeah. And that is all the time we have. I want to thank Seth for having me over to 50 Years HQ and for also being um, so honest, especially about the kind of 
confessing um, his misdeeds from earlier in his career. I think that's just super interesting and not something uh, a lot of people do, especially in that way. It'd be interesting if more of us did it. Um, <laughs> it's, uh, it's kind of a special case. Anyhow, I hope you enjoyed the conversation. We will be back next week. In the meantime, please give us a rating and review five stars if you are so inclined. Um, it helps other people find the show. I will be writing as I do every week in the Sunday Times. You can find me there too. I'm also on the Twitters at Danny Fortson. Thank you again for listening and have a fabulous weekend. As you're listening to me, Daisy, Apple's iPhone disassembly robot, is dismantling an iPhone into lots of recyclable parts. That's how Apple recovers more materials than conventional recycling methods. Thanks, Daisy. There's more to iPhone. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.